turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. So after having a few weeks, not having been in Ecclesiastes, so we're turning back to Ecclesiastes, and we are turning to chapter 5. Long section this morning, we're reading chapter 5, verse 10, down to chapter 6, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 5, bring it up in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, that God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, he has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I, Father we pray that we might come before you this morning with an appetite for your word. Even if there is 
no such appetite in the lives of some this morning. We pray, God, that you might create an appetite for your word. Lord, feed us this morning. Help us to understand. Help us to discern. Help us to apply. Help me, Lord Jesus, to be faithful to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the story or the myth of Narcissus. Depending on which version you read, Narcissus was a young, handsome man who could never find a lover to satisfy his own cravings for love. At his birth, his mother warned him to not let him look upon his own reflection from the day that he does will be evil for him. One day, he walks by a lake, and he stumbles upon his own reflection in the lake. And he immediately recognizes his own reflection. He becomes enamored with his own reflection. He loves his own reflection. And he won't get out of the waters. He remains there. Days go by. Doesn't eat, doesn't drink, because he's so fixated on his own reflection until ultimately he dies. And while it is a fiction, I do agree with what one writer had once said, and that is that even in myth, there is truth. The story of Narcissus is a story of emptiness, of loneliness, of dissatisfaction. And there certainly is some truth to that story. And the picture of Narcissus is actually a picture that is pretty consistent with the picture that I think we see here in this passage in Ephesians, excuse me, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I will remind you that as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, King Solomon, in his wisdom, is trying to help us to see what is the good life. What should we be pursuing? What are the things that we should be avoiding? And here in the passage, he's giving us a clear picture of the things that we ought to be avoiding. He also gives us a picture of the kind of life that is dissatisfied. While we may not consider ourselves to be narcissistic, I do think that in each and every one of us, there is a sense of narcissism in the sense that there is some selfishness. There is some desire to, uh, to, to, to delight in ourselves, to care for ourselves, to think about ourselves, to the neglect of God, and to the neglect of others. And so I think this passage, in many ways, functions as a warning to us. But before we get to the passage, I want to give you, and this is our first heading, some divinely inspired warnings, because the Bible has a lot to say about the desire of our hearts and our lack of of dissatisfaction. So in Exodus, I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments has to do with desire. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, this is one of the commandments. It says, which is, by the way, even though it is a Ten Commandments given to God's people, the Israelites, it is still a commandment that bears upon all human beings. Exodus 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
So there, right there, is a command that speaks to our desires, that we shall not covet, we shall not desire something that belongs to someone else. I like how one children's storybook Bible says it. It says that you shall not dream about someone else's stuff. It's a caution about our desires, that if we have the wrong desires, if we are desirous of what someone else has, someone else has, what someone else has whether it's a possession, a material possession, whether it's maybe their status, their position in their job, whether it's that other person's spouse, this is a, that is a, a transgression of God's command. And if we can go, we can actually go further back than that. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were given a command to not take the fruit of a particular tree that was forbidden from them. Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree, this forbidden tree, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we, here we have the very first sin. It was a sin of preference, a sin of desire, a sin of dissatisfaction. Here is everything they, they had. They had everything for the taking. They wanted the one thing that they could not have, but it wasn't a desire necessarily for the one thing they could not have. They desired more than that. They desired to be like God. They were dissatisfied with the way that God made them, and so they wanted to essentially become gods themselves. And therefore, then sin entered into the world, and sin then fills every human heart. Sinful desire, covetous desire, always, always prefers to have its own way over God's way. Always. Its intention is always to dethrone God. Consider Jeremiah chapter 2. Now listen to the language of Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. The Lord himself says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It says, Be appalled. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. In other words, this is scandalous. This is outrageous that the God's people have committed two evils. The first one is that they have forsaken the Lord their God, who is the fountain of living waters. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. Right? Why would you go to a fountain right, to quench your thirst? But people have forsaken the Lord, who is the, the living fountain, for things that ultimately cannot satisfy. And not only that, but they have for themselves cups with holes in them that no matter how much you pour water into the cup, it can never hold the water in. It is a sin of preference, a sin of dissatisfaction that people are seeking their satisfaction in things that ultimately do not satisfy. And the scripture says that this is outrageous, that this is evil. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
The word love there is intended to communicate something about satisfaction, that God must be our all, that God must be our greatest treasure. Right? If, you, if you treasure something, if you prize something, if you consider something really, really valuable, it's because you delight in it. You rejoice in that thing. You like that thing very much, even love it. And Jesus says that he must occupy that position in one's heart. So in summary, there are many places in the scriptures that give us these warnings when it comes to the dissatisfactions of our hearts and what they ultimately can lead to. If you just read through the book of James, you'll know some of those things. If we are not careful about the things that we are dissatisfied with, and even the things that we desire that might actually be good, always, there's always a, a danger of turning those things into idols. But if we're not careful, if we're not cognizant or aware of the things that we are after, the things that we, sad, that we desire and crave for, the Bible is clear in many places that it can lead to the severing of relationships, it can lead to strife, to lying, to cheating, and even in extreme cases can lead to murder. Sinful desire, sin-filled desire. When there's envy, when there's covetous desire that we allow to fester and grow in our hearts, can lead to ruination, to deprivation, to isolation. And the Bible also makes clear it can ultimately lead to damnation. So then, let me turn us to a second heading, and that is three pictures. So as we then turn to the passage here in Ecclesiastes, the passage that we've read this morning, I think it gives us three pictures of what the good life is not and the things that we should avoid. So the first picture is the picture of a, dis- of a dissatisfied man. In verse 10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Satisfaction has everything to do with rest. Right? When we are satisfied, whether it's with the day's work, whether it's with the project, when we are satisfied, we can rest. But when we are dissatisfied, when we are always hungry, when we are always craving, well, there's never really any rest, not any kind of substantial rest. And the thing about sinful desire is, never, is that it is never satisfied. Yes, the passage speaks a lot about wealth and the desire for wealth, but, the, but wealth itself, the desire for wealth, is just a symptom of a much greater issue. But the greater issue is the issue of dissatisfaction. People seeking pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment and things that ultimately do not satisfy. And for many people, the pursuit of satisfaction comes through their pursuit of wealth. 
But sinful desire is never satisfied. And so this is the kind of picture that it paints for us here in this first section. It's a dissatisfied man. It's a person who has a black hole in his heart, like the black holes in outer space, that with the gravitational pull, all they do is suck things in. They take things in. But the thing about the black hole is that it is never full. In fact, it actually continues to grow. And so it is when we are not careful with the dissatisfactions of our hearts that all what we will do is just consume and consume and eat and drink in and take in. And sometimes we might get some relief, but it's only a matter of time before the appetite just kicks up again and might even find itself to be greater than it was before. Not only that, but it tells us here that the person then is surrounded by other people who just consume the wealth that they have been desirous of and working hard for, hard towards. Right, the, the rich are never lacking in friendships, right? Because it's like the more money a person makes, the more assets they acquire, the more wealth that they accrue for themselves, well, then the more friends they have. Right, the exchange relationship is no longer exchanged anymore. The person who didn't want to be your friend anymore now wants to be your friend again. But the picture this person that this gives us is a person who continues to work and work and work and work for the for the uh, for the uh, for the acquiring of all these things that he is desirous of, but he never really enjoys them because he cannot rest. Because all he wants is more. I'm a terrible sleeper, so I've discovered about myself, about my body, that I can't consume anything after 7.30 p.m. I can only have water, but I have to go to bed on an empty stomach because otherwise, if I eat or drink something after 7.30, I'm going to have a restless night. I'm going to be up, I'll probably wake up at 2 a.m. and not be able to fall back to sleep or just the quality of my sleep will just be terrible. This is the picture of a person who cannot rest because even in his sleeping, all he can think about is getting this one thing that they want. And they can never rest until they have more, but they think that having more will give them satisfaction, but they discover that it actually only increases their appetite. So this is the picture of a dissatisfied man. And so we should be aware of this kind of picture. And we should be aware if there is any desire in our own hearts. Is there any kind of desire in your own heart? Is there any kind of black hole in your heart right now that you're trying to consume with things that ultimately never satisfy? So this is the picture of a dissatisfied man the teacher also gives us a second picture, and this is the picture of a, a stupid man. Now, when I say the word stupid, I'm not intending to use it in an offensive manner like that people normally do. Like they use the word stupid to, and they mean actually to offend somebody or to, or to injure someone's reputation or just to call them names. That's not the way I'm intending to use it here. The word stupid essentially means somebody who lacks sense. And the Bible, by the way, uses the word stupid, so I feel justified in using the word stupid. And this will probably be the only sermon that you'll ever hear me preach where I'm saying the word stupid so many times. But this is a picture of a stupid man. Verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, 
riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. The first picture was a picture of a dissatisfied man, and this gives us a picture of a man who has lost everything. He's lost everything. This is the picture of a person who is desirous of something that never fully satisfies, and he gives himself to everything, and he even throws everything on the line to get more of the thing that he's desirous of and actually ends up with nothing. This is the person who makes a bad investment. This is a person who takes the advice of somebody who perhaps he doesn't really know. He says, hey, you need to invest everything into this one stock because if I do, I guarantee you, you're going to make 100 times than what you invested in. So he does. He puts everything in this one bucket instead of perhaps dispersing it into different stocks. He puts it all in one place and then the stock plummets, ends up terribly, and he loses everything. A terrible investment, a foolish investment, a stupid investment. Right, one of the most, and this is a way that is really common today where we really see this throwing away of wealth. I was in Kentucky just last week for a pastor's conference and I saw this billboard that said, my favorite form of cardio. You know what it was? It was a picture of a hand grasping a handle attached to a slot machine. So this is sort of the favorite form of cardio. It's a, a bit humorous, a bit comical, but it's tragic. I mean, casinos are a $40 billion business. I mean, how do they generate so much money right, with people throwing away their wealth to satisfy some kind of craving in their hearts? They say that the average debt generated by a man who was addicted to gambling is fifty-five to ninety thousand dollars. This is the kind of man that this passage paints for us, who makes bad investments, who is foolish with his wealth because he wants more of it. And the picture is actually worse, for it tells us. that he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hands. So this is actually a family man. This is a man with a son. This is someone probably with a spouse. And he makes a foolish decision because he's so desirous of more wealth to put all of his assets, all of his investments, all of his money into this one bucket that ends up losing everything, and now his family is destitute and is living in poverty because he was unwise with his wealth, because he let his desires take control of his life. And he made an irrational decision. I don't know if you've ever been to a store, like these clothing stores, like 
I don't know, like H&M or like, I don't remember if it was the last one, like our apostle or something where the music is just blaring. I mean, you can't even have a conversation. Hey, honey, what's this? How do you th- what do you think of this? What? I can't hear you because the music is so loud. You know why they had the music up so loud? So that you don't make a rational decision. This is a person who cannot make rational decisions because he is so driven by his desires and ends up ruining his own life and the life of his family. One of the things that the teacher tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes is just how grievous it is for a person to work all their lives and then end up with nothing when they upon the day of their death. Now, I will remind you as I have before that the teacher does not have the hope of the resurrection. He lives long before Jesus has come into the world, so he doesn't have that holy optimism that you and I have of the rich rewards that we will be blessed with when we are resurrected and join Jesus Christ. And so to him, it is a grievous evil that a person can work all their lives and accrue all these things and then upon their death not be able to take anything with them. The tragic thing about this particular picture is that God didn't have to lift a finger to take away anything from this person. He actually, through his foolish decision, gave it all away. Something we should take away from this, and in light of many other passages in the Scriptures that speak to money, is that whether you have a little or a lot, no one can afford to have a careless attitude towards money. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Everything that you and I have has been given to us by God, by the hand of a gracious God, and that then calls us to be good stewards of what we have been entrusted with. And no matter how little or how much God has given to you, you cannot afford to have a careless attitude towards money. And we cannot afford to let our desires make irrational decisions that would then not only ruin our lives, but ruin the lives of our loved ones. So then just think to yourself, what, is, what are you desirous of? And how might those desires lead you to make an irrational decision? I'm a person who really likes tech stuff. And sometimes I'll ask my wife, hey, what do you think about this? I'll give the reasons, like, I really want this. Can I, do you think it would be a really good thing for me to buy? And very kind and very gracious, she'll essentially tell me, hon, that's stupid. It's just going to sit there on your desk, collect dust, going to use it once. I mean, you need a, a pair of shoes because yours are breaking. Why don't you use the money you have and buy something actually useful? Right, do you have some, would you be willing to ask that kind of question to someone? Considering the desires of your heart, would you be willing to ask somebody that you trust, hey, I think this would be a really good decision. What do you think? Or would you, even, would you be willing to be that kind of person? Would you be willing to tell the truth to somebody? 
because sometimes it is only harmful to tell the person exactly what they want to hear. Sometimes your voice is the only voice of truth. Sometimes you have to say the hard thing and say, listen, I understand why you want to do this or you want to pursue this course of action, but as your friend, as your brother or sister in Christ, I would caution you against it. I think this is actually a foolish decision. And we need that kind of person in our lives to be that upfront and tell us to spare us from making mistakes. We have one more picture. And this is the picture of a lonely man. So chapter 6, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoying no good, do not all go to the one place. So here we have a contrast, kind of a stark contrast, because it gives us a, con- a picture of a stillborn child, or a child who is miscarrying, and then a picture of a man who is desirous of wealth, who is let his desires run rampant like a wild Mustang. And the point is not, the focus is not on the stillborn child. The focus is on the picture of this man. The teacher's not saying that this isn't heinous, this isn't grievous, that the stillborn child, it is a tragedy, it is awful, it is terrible. It is incredibly saddening. But he's giving us this in order to help us to see that this kind of life, that this kind of person who lives by his desires and is always running to things that never ultimately satisfy, that while evil, as evil and as tragic as this is, this is awful. This is a tragedy. This is evil. This is outrageous. That this person, that even if she would live a hundred lives, live many years, father many children, have many good gifts, that this person still would not be satisfied. And what's worse is that this man is alone. It says, it tells us that he has no burial. He follows a hundred children, lives many years, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial. This person has, doesn't have a proper burial. So when he dies, what you see is nobody. Nobody's there at his funeral. Nobody's missing him. Nobody's mourning him. Why is that? Because he has spent his life running after these vain pursuits that ultimately do not satisfy And because he's so fixated on these things, because he's given himself to this thing and this thing alone, he's he's severed his closest relationships. He's cut them off. He doesn't enjoy his family. He doesn't enjoy his children. 
And so when he dies, he dies alone. Again, this is a picture that the Lord wants us to avoid, to stay clear of this. This is not the good life. The good life doesn't consist in acquiring wealth and status and honor and prestige and all of these things. It's not a running after the desires of our hearts for these things. So if you want to avoid this kind of life at all, then you must keep your desires in check and especially slay those sinful desires that might be in your heart. And you might think to yourself, well, yes, there might be some things, some desires in my heart that I think I need to bring up to the Lord and ask Him to satisfy because I do think they're wrong, but I'm nowhere near the kind of pictures that the teacher presents to us in this word. Nowhere close to that. But let us humble ourselves. Let us not ever think that this could be us. This could never be us. I mean, just take things to the logical conclusion. Whatever desires are in your heart, whatever things that you are looking to satisfy outside of Christ, just take them to the logical conclusion. What would happen if you gave yourself to the desires of your heart, if you gave yourself to just pursuing these things all the way to their end, you might then find yourself living a reality that is given to us in one of these three pictures. So then where is the advantage? Is the advantage then, well, then let us make sure that we have as little as possible so that in order to keep ourselves from ever making a shipwreck of our lives like we see in these pictures? Well, according to chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, essentially there are no winners and losers. That no matter how wise you are, or no matter how little you have, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll keep yourself from living like these three pictures are given to us. <clears throat> and so then what do we do? How do we keep ourselves? What, how can we guard ourselves in the desires of our hearts from ever getting to this kind of place. Well, let me bring you to the last heading this morning, and that is a sentinel of God's grace. There's a way that we can guard our hearts, a way that we can protect God's grace over our lives. And in chapter 6, in verses 1 through 2, the, there is a God-centeredness in this passage. And it shows here that God is in the picture. God is there, even in the life of the godless person. Because God is sort of in the background. He's orchestrating different things in the life of people. And what it tells us is that God actually gives people wealth and status and honor to some. And a natural question might be is, well, why does God do that? Especially if we might consider the person is undeserving. Why would God give more material blessings to some than others? 
the passage doesn't directly tell us, but I think a couple of reasons why God would do such things is, one, perhaps it is a form of God's judgment. Because we see here in the passage, in this section, that yes, God gives to some all these material blessings, but he also does not give them the power to enjoy them. Let us remember that according to the scriptures, right, we don't deserve anything. What we deserve is a judgment of God because of our sins, because of our transgressions, because we do not always pursue satisfaction in God and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? But praise be to God for his son, Jesus Christ, because through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can receive forgiveness of our sins. And we, re- re- we receive much more than we could ever deserve. But perhaps the reason why God gives some material blessings than he gives to others, but not the power to enjoy it, is because it's a form of his judgment. Because as the teacher says, it's a grievous evil to continue to run hard after things that ultimately do not satisfy. Perhaps there's a form of God's judgment to keep this person running and running and running to pursue to crave, to hunger, and never satisfy. Another reason why God might do this might be as a means of his grace, a means of a divine favor. Perhaps it's to help the person to see, I've been running after these things, I've been trying to consume and drinking and taking all this stuff, and I'm realizing that ultimately it actually does not satisfy, so there has to be something more. If you're familiar with St. Augustine, Augustine in part came to salvation in that way through a passage in Romans chapter 13 that speaks to the gratification of of the flesh. People actually get saved or come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by realizing, I've been running after the, the wrong things, and this is where we come in and tear with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, nothing in this world can satisfy the longing of your heart. Nothing at all. But if you pursue satisfaction, if you pursue peace, if you pursue lasting pleasure and joy, it can only be found in having your sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you will find satisfaction in this world. Again, how exactly do we guard our hearts from being covetous and finding satisfaction in the things that ultimately do not satisfy. What we see here in the passage also is God's grace in giving. God God gives. Yes, he does give material blessings to many. He's giving material blessings to you and praise the Lord for that. But a satisfaction in God and in Christ comes from first acknowledging that everything that you and I have ultimately comes from God's gracious hand. And then that beckons us to a God or Christ-centered enjoyment of everything that God has given to us. Again, that great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't say you shall like the Lord your God. It doesn't say you shall 
obey the Lord your God. It does not say you shall serve the Lord your God. It does not even say you shall fear the Lord your God. No, it actually says you shall love the Lord your God. It is speaking to the satisfaction of your hearts. It's asking, it is commanding, it is demanding that you find your all in Christ. To give your entire life to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.24, we have the example of Moses where it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We look to the reward. We look to the things that God has promised us in his word as a way of satisfying us now in the present and keeping us from pursuing the things of the world and finding satisfaction in the things of the world. Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Philippians 3.8, the apostle Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The things of the world he considers rubbish. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he had a lot. He had a lot to lose by giving his life to Christ. And he considered this is all rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. Even if it comes with affliction, even if it comes with suffering, even if it comes with trials, this is much better than anything else I can get in this world. Satisfaction that is grounded in Jesus Christ is the best way to guard yourself against sinful desires. Even those desires that may be good but have a, might, be, might have a tendency to become idols. Jonathan Edwards once said that the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. It's not that you don't enjoy anything else. It's not that you don't enjoy your family. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy your job. It doesn't mean that you enjoy the pleasant experiences of life but it's that your happiness, your ultimate happiness, your satisfying happiness can only be satisfied in the Lord. So we must pursue satisfaction in Christ. And there's a lot to say about that. But one way that I would put before you, that sort of I think... sort of captures a lot of things that we could say with regards to how do we pursue Jesus Christ. The one thing I will give to you is that you have to give yourself to the pursuit of Christ. Because the question of dissatisfaction is really a question of consumption. What are you consuming? And what is your palate after? Do you have a palate for Christ? Do you have a palate for holiness? Do you have a palate for, for purity? Do you have a palate for knowing Christ Jesus, or is your palate more towards the world? Because whatever you consume is whatever will develop your palate. If, you have, if you're constantly consuming the things of the world, looking for satisfaction and pleasure and delight in the things of the world, 
that you're not going to have a palate that is giving to Christ. And the only way to turn that around is to starve yourself from the consumption of the things of the world and give yourself to consuming Christ, consuming Christ through his word, reading his word, knowing Christ through his word. It is through prayer. I was convicted pretty recently reading this book on prayer where it says that if you think of prayer as as a way of just having a conversation with God, then you don't really have a very high view of prayer. Because yes, prayer is talking with God, but it is much more than that. Prayer is prayer to the Christian is like breathing. It's how we breathe as Christians. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. So one thing I would ask is, if, if I don't have a palate for Christ, if I find the things of the world much more satisfying and pleasing to me than knowing Christ, then I would ask, how much are you praying? Are you breathing? Because without prayer, you're just holding your breath. And if you're holding your breath for a long time, right, you're going to wither and you're going to die. Give yourself to the pursuit of Christ. Pursue the Lord Jesus through his word. Pursue the Lord Jesus through prayer. Pursue the Lord Jesus by having conversations about the Lord, about his word, engaging and being a part of a community group, coming on Sunday mornings, meeting with other believers, having conversations with, about the Lord Jesus. Work on the diet of your spiritual life. Give yourself to developing a palate for Christ, to learning about Christ, to knowing Christ through his word, or perhaps through other secondary literature that lends itself to thinking about Christ and knowing more about Christ. Are you giving yourself to the pursuit of Christ? Is Christ your greatest treasure? Make Christ your greatest treasure if you have not yet made that decision. To trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins to trust in him, to follow him. Because he is ultimately the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And if you are a Christian today, then you, you know this. You know this, and so pursue the Lord Jesus. Foster a growing appetite for Christ and develop the palate for the things that God loves and calls us to. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us a growing appetite for Christ? Lord, there are so many things in the world that are just competing for our attention. There's so much sin in the world. There are so many temptations. And temptation and sin is always irrational. It is always illogical to sin against God. But Lord, sometimes we make that mistake. Sometimes we do sin. And we thank you for the forgiveness that has been purchased for us with the blood of Jesus Christ. But Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to pursue Jesus to know the Lord our God who is our Savior. 
Help us to have a growing appetite for the Lord. Lord, if there any, be anyone this morning who is just desirous of having a growing appetite for Christ, Lord, would you do that for them this very morning? Would you be gracious and do that? Give that to your people. Help us to know the Lord. Help us to encourage one another to know the Lord Jesus. Help us to look forward to the reward. Help us to remember what we already have in Christ. Forgiveness of sins, adoption of sons and daughters of God, the Holy Spirit who is our helper and our comforter, and so much more. And in these things, we have more than enough reasons to be joy-filled and satisfied in Christ. And only in satisfaction in Christ can we rightly enjoy the other things that you so graciously give to us. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.